feel like Gordon Bombay would have taken his career to even further heights. Everything's flashy, everything's cocaine, everything's fun. Open wide for some soccer. I don't care what you think about, what your personal thoughts are at home. I care that you hate the Cowboys. Call this college rule! Welcome back, everybody, to the Sports Experience Podcast. Dom and Chris here. Uh, before we get uh, started with the episode, just uh, we're recording down here at Angle Studio in downtown Tucson um, for all of your audio needs here in town. So uh, stop on by if you have any of those. Um, please also follow our social medias and uh, make sure you keep listening to those episodes, send suggestions, and like and subscribe us, man. We, we've been rocking and rolling here through this little series we've got going. I was going to say, we're 200 plus episodes. We're in the middle of a great uh block of episodes which is some of my favorite because it really like stacks facts on top of each other we get all these spider webs like we always talk about um and we're in the middle of brothers in baseball the brothers <laughs> brothers <laughs> uh the three b's brothers in baseball you guys know what we're talking about and uh i feel like this these two could have been some of the best but one overshadows the other. One overshadows the other. It's almost like Paul and Lloyd Wainer. Oh, yeah. Like we did last week. So if you haven't listened to some old-timey baseball, go and check those two episodes out. But uh, today, I'm very excited about this one. I even wore the headband today. I know. I am that excited about these episodes. Today, for this episode, we are talking about Joe DiMaggio, the Jol- Yankee Clipper. Jolton Joe, the man with all the nicknames. All the nicknames and... Uh, he liked the ladies too, Chris. Mm, the, well, he definitely was the first uh, Italian American star, and we'll definitely talk about this. He's a goddamn hero to us all. That's yes. That's literally what a lot of Italians were saying. Was just like he was our first. He broke as an the Italian mold, American, yes, because he wasn't saying I'm American. He was just like I'm Italian, and it was like you know this whole thing. I'm Italian, but I'm also American, playing for. America's team as yes. far as baseball, even though a lot of people don't like the team that he played for. I, I let that one go. But he's I was going to say, they, they respected him, especially in this era, because they were like the most clean cut, like, and they were the elite team. If you think about it, he is like one of the most quintessential immigrant Italian American stories. Like, I mean, just his entire life. Let's just get into it, Chris. Yeah, Let's yeah, just do please, it. Please. Joseph Paul DiMaggio, born. November 25th, 1914. Not his real name. That's no. the American Americanized name. Did not know that. Yep. Uh, instead of Joseph Paul, which is English, it was uh, Giuseppe Paolo DiMaggio. That's right. And his mom actually wanted him to go by Paolo. Oh, very nice. Because that's well, his dad's name. That's his dad's name. Um, born in uh, Martinez, California, which is over in the Bay Area. The eighth of nine children because, well, hey, Roman Catholics. You right. know, they thought he would be actually their last child was not. No. Nope. Um, his parents were Sicilian immigrants. They were from the Isola delle Feminine, Femine, which is a small island off the coast of Sicily. And uh, his dad was a fisherman there. Um, his dad made his way to America because his father-in-law told him, hey, there's a lot of great opportunity to be a fisherman there. You should go. If it goes well for a year, send for my daughter. And that's exactly what he did made his way to ellis island land of opportunity made his way to the bay area where he settled started a family with his wife and uh began an american experience there Uh, i thought it was interesting they grew up very poor um Mm -hmm. because there were rich fishermen but they they had these bigger boats that could go out and get crab and like these like 
expensive things. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And he, because he had just like a small one person, like fisherman's boat, he literally was called a Bay Area fisherman because he couldn't go out of this little Bay Area. Oh, man. And they said it was like he pretty much was like fishing for scraps. And him and his brothers were like, Talking about how poor they were and growing up, how like but you they know would... what they would have been even more poor in Sicily. Yes, which is like they may have a shit life by American standards as far as like lack of income, but way more than they ever would have made. Yes, had they stayed in Sicily. It's all about legacy, all about building. You know, because this is like, uh, and that was what I think his father was trying to be like. Like his friends were talking about that, like. My dad does this, and you're, yeah. you know what I mean? And then his, his dad, Giuseppe, would just be like, no, 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 it is so much better here. Yep. You have no idea. <laughs> and, but it, it ingrained this, like, need, a need to win mentality because they were saying, like, they used to gamble, obviously, as kids for, like, pennies and shit. Hard work, yeah. And it was, like, a hard work, even though his dad called him lazy all the time. Well, that's just the... Uh, that uh, sounds like my fucking older relatives, yes. Chris. Just, like, American kids are spoiled lazy, like, in the Bronx tale. Well, he said that he hated the smell of fish guts, and his dad, obviously, would make him clean his boat. And he was like, I would do anything to not do that. And, like, that I, made him, like, be like, oh, you're the you're my laziest kid. It's like uh, D, the Deion Sanders story about doing, like, landscaping. I will do anything but this and make sure I'm the best at something to where I never have to do this again. Yeah, seriously. But uh, as far as the – and I feel in – in a way, I do feel bad for his dad – only because he wanted all his boys to be fishermen. Yes, that but, was his vision. Yeah, like just, and okay, I'm going to start a business, and then you're just going to grow it, go outside the bay, and set up one of the most successful fishing companies in San Francisco. But his he came from a family of fishermen. Yeah. Like, I remember wanting to look back and, like, but didn't know, but, like, they even said, like, his grandfather in Sicily was literally a fisherman, and you were just like, oh, yeah, this is what he envisions coming to, especially going to San Francisco. Yeah. I imagine he was just like, well, we have to be on a port city, or, you know what I mean. Like, well, yeah, uh, we, we got to be near the water. Yeah. Like, we're not going to Omaha. That's, that's right. Not gonna, that's not, not going to fly. <laughs> no. Um, like you said, though, he thought Joe was lazy, and unlike... The next episode where we'll talk about his brother, school didn't mean anything to Joe as far as like, you know, oh, I'm going to go to college. He found quite the activity that he was good at, though. Well, I again, it's for the times. Uh, they said he stopped going in middle school and nobody asked if he was coming back. Yeah, like uh, he, I think he went for less than a year to Galileo High School. Yeah, yeah, in the Bay Area. Which, if you don't know, same alma mater as one Orenthal James Simpson. It's crazy that there's just two amazing athletes, same high school, no controversy after their career. None at all. Absolutely none at all. Not with blonde white women. <laughs> oh shit! I don't know why you're bringing it up. <laughs> I don't know why we got to connect dots here. Murder is now legal in the state of California. No, uh, he started playing semi-pro uh, ball uh, by age 17 in 1931. But it, it, I, another quote that I absolutely love was he was like, never took it seriously. It He signed up for his first semi-pro team because they said that they would they were getting uniforms yeah. and cleats. And he was like, oh, yeah, I'll sign up for the shoes. That's like literally what he was talking about. So like him, but he was his such a dad, dapper guy. But like, him, his dad, like his whole family saw it as a game. There wasn't yeah. that next level that everybody kind of like looks at now. 
Um, we'll talk in the next episode. We'll get into his dad and changing this is, his mind. That, I love that. That's why I'm, which is just like oh, gotta foreshadow a, it. This is a thing. <laughs> no, 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 no. Yeah. Um, so near the end of the 32 season, he's playing uh, shortstop and third base though. At this point, you know, you got a pretty good arm there. And well, that's uh, where you put rate. your best players. Yeah, and that's uh, yeah. Um, he started uh, working uh, odd jobs um, along at this point, and his older brother Vince was playing for the semi-pro San Francisco Seals, which in our winter episodes, that's one of the top semi-pro leagues, the PCL, that you can have at this juncture in American history. As I was going to say, baseball. pretty much the West Coast pros. Yeah, exactly. Um, he uh, talked to his manager, uh, Ike Cavani, to give his 17-year-old brother a chance, and uh, he lets him play. He fills in the last three games at shortstop, and in 1933, he signed for a cool $225 a month. Oh, my God. To be honest, Joe seems... DiMaggio made only $225 a month to play baseball. It does seem like the San Francisco, when I look at these deals, the Seals, hey, now, um, it seems like they actually made a pretty good amount of money getting these prospects and selling them to Yankees, Indians, you know, Red Sox. Yes. It's a, it's an interesting, when you look at it, you're just kind of like, Oh yeah, that's where the money was going because they were paying Joe DiMaggio $220 a month. You're 16. We'll pay you nothing. But then when you're awesome, we will sell you for an ungodly amount of money. At least 50K, which it's, in that era was a like, billion dollars. Like the underpants gnomes. Next step profit. Next step profit. Um, in 33, uh, his arm is a little bit erratic despite being strong, so he's moved to the outfield. Um, he's less than two years removed from playing playground and sandlot ball. And... Holy crap. In 1933, he takes a Pacific Coast League by storm. Just takes it absolutely by storm. He has a 60, and we'll get into these, a 61-game hitting streak. Uh, so they move him to center field. And which is where he belongs. Which is where he belongs. Because he's a 5 tool player. And he shows how much of a better hitter he is than everybody in this league. Even though I think it's still, because it's considered minor league, triple uh, A. But I think it's he has the second longest streak in minor league at sixty one, and you're just like, how how? It, it, it's not that it's not that he's playing in lesser competition compared to major league baseball. It's how much do, how much dominance he's illustrating over the competition. Where it's like, why is he even wasting his time here? A quote from Joe. Yes, and it, it's not exactly what he said, but this is what he was pretty much saying was like he was. A baseball player, he understood it. But when he got on the sixty-one yes, game I love this hit one. streak, this is when all of his focus, and this is literally what he was saying. It was just like, no, 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 women, drinking, money, everything went on the back burner to me needing to get a hit every single day. And you were just like, oh yeah, that is the way he plays his entire career from this point. Oh on. no, it's like some Michael Jordan last dance stuff. As far as just focus, he said, baseball didn't get into my blood until I knocked off that hitting streak. That, oh. At, well, and this is the kind of thing where people were talking about, they were just like, some players have like a better, they're physically stronger, they're, they're faster, whatever, whatever. Joe would show up every single game, and there's other quotes I'm going to bring up later, but he would show up every single game and like we said, need to win. That, yeah. that was the mentality that I felt like came from this, like, 
whatever like poor upbringing even though his dad would be like we're rich but like <laughs> literally though his friends and like all of that kind of san francisco kind of scene that he kind of came up in was like molded him to this like need and desire to be better or like perfect well you know what chris he doesn't want to go back on a fishing boat for the rest of his life <laughs> it's i mean uh, i don't a, want fish guts there's another one later where we're going to get into it where he threatens them and they were yeah. he threatens the yankees and they're like if you actually knew joe you know this is just the bottomless threat because he's like i'm going back to be a fisherman really joe uh, really <laughs> yarg uh he hits 340 that first year in the uh, pcl and as a guy who's 6'2", 190 pounds, who's a 5 tool player, he just has everything you would want in a center fielder. Bigger than – and because obviously a little bit undersized as an average, and he really is everything you're looking for as a pro player. Something I've never knew was he gets injured. Okay, yeah. So in 1934, he hits 341. After the season, he tears ligaments in his right knee stepping out of a public transport. Which is, I had to, like, Wikipedia and Google exactly what they were describing, because this is like an old-timey type of, like, livery delivery service Mm -hmm. for people. So he ends up having this injury, even though everybody in MLB is interested, but it kind of creates a big question mark. However, there is one team who would really like to bring Joe in. And who is that, Chris? Well, I feel like they have enough capital to take a chance. Yes. That's the thing of what the Yankees have that maybe some other teams don't have, where they're like, look, we think he's going to fully recover. We don't think there's going to be any problems going forward. He's young. You know what I mean? Like, it was a great chance that they took because they let him and i think they let him actually play another year with yeah the... so in in 35 he wasn't supposed to come to new york until 1936 yeah and all he does in 1935 is hit 398 154 rbis 34 dingers help the seals win the championship and won the league mvp so if you're the yankees it's like all right we're gonna take a chance on this guy let's see how he plays Holy shit. Yes. We cannot wait. Like, oh, Babe Ruth is just gone. Lou Gehrig must – he has some kind of illness. I think we'll be okay. Well, it for the short period here, because obviously this is the Yankees' dominance, um, the Yankees are in kind of uh, in flux because you're right. Ruth is gone. The attendance kind of drops a little. This is before TV money. Finishing so. in second – in the AL a lot. Yes. This is the time when you see those A's teams with Jimmy Fox being really good, you know? Um, the Yankees signed him for $50,000, like you brought up before, and five players. And 1936, there's some big expectations for uh, Mr. DiMaggio. And uh, he's, uh, I will say, he's not the first Guido superstar this team's had. They had Tony Lazeri batting behind Babe yes. Ruth. So, but you're at, you're going to New York. I mean, that's the if you're not going to stay in San Francisco, that's the perfect place for you. Well, I felt like because there there are there were expectations because he had that extra season with the Seals where people could kind of look at it and yeah. obviously look at stats and stuff. But he also was pretty green. Where I know in some of his first uh, practices. Some of the sports writers were like, hey, Joe, give us a quote. And he just goes, I don't, I don't have one. And he turned to his friend and he just goes, what's a quote, a soda? <laughs> like, so like, that's how, you know what I mean? Like, I got a quote for you right here. Yeah, well, that's later on. <laughs> yeah, um, it is. But that's how green he was coming in. And then when all of the sports writers said that they saw him, 
you know, batting practice, all of this stuff, they literally started to write, here is the next or here is the answer to Ruth leaving. So not only in his debut on May 3rd, 1936 he bats ahead of Lou Gehrig oh yeah that was the other yes so this is just the passing of the torch and when we talk about the end of his career you see who he passes the torch to and you're like god I hate this franchise with every fiber of my goddamn being but there was a quote by Dan Daniel in the sporting news um, March 26 1936 so like right as spring trainings Peter and out he said Yankees fans regard him as the Moses who is to lead their club out of the second place wilderness and he comes in pretty much as good as I was, advertised I was just on the say, field. Yes, he comes in as good as any rookie in this era. Um, we see him, I mean, literally, because batting ahead of uh, of Gehrig in this had to have been just like a huge statement where everybody was just like, here's our team for the next decade. You're welcome. Wait till they beat Hitler. <laughs> oh, my God. So... <laughs> He's the Time Magazine cover boy in 36. He hits 323, 29 dingers, scores 125 runs, leads MLB in triples, Frank Thomas. Take that. And I'm just going to say that that rookie record for home runs for their franchise stood until Aaron Judge showed up. The Judge. Which, unbelievable. That's unbelievable how good this guy was. Um, go to the 1936 World Series. They play the New York Giants. Our buddy Mel Ott is there. All he does is hit 346 with three ribbies as they win the series. I mean, uh, this is your first, and we'll talk about all this say, World we're Series. Gonna, we're going to bring it up for the next decade, but he is one of these players that shows up in the biggest games and hits. It's, when you hit better than your average in the regular season, that's when everyone's just like, oh, yeah, yeah. Here we you go. are the Guido parting the Red Sea at Yankee Stadium. Here we go. <laughs> and to double down on this, um, there were obviously a bunch of like racial tension between immigrants and a bunch of, oh, of immigrants course. were not giving respect. And I remember some, we're not working with a real deep bench, Chris, it's at this point in it's history. True. We're not but working with a real deep bench, Artemis. There, there were some, there were some, uh, fans who were talking about it and they were just like, Oh yeah. Well, like this kind of brought me and my like Spanish friends together. Cause they were like, Oh yeah, we can get behind him because we see the respect that, these you know italians are getting because and this is the thing that dimaggio really gave everybody was he looked the exact same every time you saw him he yep. was never disheveled he was never you he know was calculated like, and even post-career in how he presented himself to everyone yes consummate he professional was never babe ruth eating hot dogs and drinking pops and whatever the fuck you know what i mean he was literally the sharp Italian man you think of from like Mad Men era almost yeah. or like what would in- influence Mad Men you I know mean, what I mean just oh just to see someone with a vowel at the end of their last name oh, I mean, give it oh, to me god I love it but uh get back th- in there now. was a good quote uh, somebody had asked him like you know why do you play so hard why do you go after it and he said because some people might be seeing me for the very first time I think that's my favorite quote from him yeah because he did show up every single day and play his hardest Absolutely. And that's it. I mean, if you look at this domination era, that's kind of what they were talking about. The mentality that the Yankees had was perfection. It it was basically, they were the, I would say from this era up until probably the early 60s, they were the Globo Gym franchise. Just like, we're better than you and yes. we know it. Yes. 
Uh, 37. All he does is lead Major League Baseball in dingers. 46. 151 runs and 418 total bases. And let's bring up the fact that Yankee Stadium... It's not a it's not a power park in the alleys. It's literally built to where like they were saying they were just like, "Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. it's built to where a power lefty is better than a power righty." And that's what he was, and it was I forget who said it. It might have even been uh Gehrig was just like, "Oh yeah, he probably would have had 10 to 15 more home runs. There, or, you, there was a ridiculous stat. I yeah. forget what it was. I'm going to look it up right here. Okay. Because it, it, it said he hit 148 of his homers on the road or at home, 213 on the road, and his slugging percentage was way better on the road. They, they like factored in all this ridiculous math as far as like ball trajectory that he would hit, you know, the ball at Yankee Stadium. At Yan- yeah. He would have had probably 70 more home runs in his career. It's crazy. Yeah. And, and when, when you, Think of the era, though. This is what I mean. Coming off of Ruth, he really is that answer of he, like he was the most popular Yankee in this by far. And how could he not be? Yeah, and and, and that's the weird part. He's replacing two of the most legendary players up to that point in baseball history. Exactly. Um, that year he had a career high 215 hits. He hit safely in 43 of 44 games between June and August of that season. Um, go to the World Series again, beat the Giants again. again. <laughs> Just a dinger and four RBIs, you know, uh, stay at the park for Joe D. This is his first MVP season, right? Um, I was that next. One? No, I believe okay. it's, it, we're coming up here on it. Um, 38, uh, just more of the same. 324, 32 dinger. 100. He got he has so many RBIs. Yep. That's ridiculous. 140 RBIs again. They go to the World Series. Beat the Cubs. They sweep the goddamn Cubs. Three years in and three titles. Like the the hype was met. You know what I mean? That's what's great coming out of it because everybody was just like, here we go again. And it's so exciting to see that and then literally just be like, told you. But the hype. He exceeded the hype. Oh yeah, I don't think anyone envisioned I would, right. this. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I'm, I'm not, not to say that they didn't think they were going to get an all star, you know, because of what he does in the PCL. But this type of a champion, this type of dominance is ridiculous. Um, 39, he gets his famed nickname, the Yankee Clipper, by the play-by-play announcer. Said his speed and range in center field was akin to the new Pan American airliner. Some some uh, air travel starting in America in the late 30s. Well, him and his brother were great center fielders. And it's... Uh, oh, yeah. He also has some just the best, for some reason, just like obviously baseball nicknames in this era, but just Jolton Joe and the Yankee Clipper are just the best nicknames. I remember one time, this is way back in the day, I told Dave Margolis how many days I drank in a row. And much like DiMaggio with the streak, he started calling me the Yankee Sipper. <laughs> it's so good. It's so good, Dave. So good. So 39, though, this is where he's incredible. Career high 448 on base percentage. He wins a batting title hitting 381. 30 dingers, 126 RBIs, and wins his first MVP. Oh, yeah, 39. And, yeah, oh, yeah, you're, you're right. 39 with the batting title. 
MVP in fourth consecutive World Series. It's they it's, sweep the Reds. It's a it's crazy over in the series. And I was just gonna say the back to back sweeps in World Series is another thing that people bring up about these Yankee teams that are just like, yeah, nobody was even like in competition with them. <laughs> Every other city and every other fan of every sports, I'm like, God damn, I hate that Bob Barker. Like, <laughs> 1940 wins another batting title. Another over 30 home runs. 333 RBIs. I did want to mention uh, in 39, though, um, in August, he had 53 RBIs, which was tied for the record for most RBIs in a month. In a month, yeah. And that was when Hack Wilson set the MLB record back in the day. I mean... Insane. Of course, in 1940, though, they end up missing the World Series. Sorry, Joe, you can't win them all. Four in a row. It's crazy. Oh, but and then we get into 41. Let's get into 41 because this is well. This is when this is the uh, season. This is you know because heroes get remembered, but legends never die. And this is when all your heart, kids. So when he becomes a legend. Oh my God! Pickles the the beast. beast. Hitler. Forever. <laughs> so we're on the verge of the uh, Second World War. Yes. Um, it's it's begun in Europe. Uh, America's obviously we're going. Tr- trying to stay out, but also sending the Allies a lot of material. They start introducing night games. Yes. To this get- is, this just to, I'm just trying to get you the, into the era yeah, that oh, we're yeah. in. <laughs> and DiMaggio does something, and people were talking about this, where... You know when like stuff happens in sports and like like the home run race with Bonds and McGuire, where like I the just whole, listened to that Sosa episode in where, the gym, where the whole nation just kind of like stays in tune, and people were saying like this really captured the nation. Oh, I mean, l- l- I'm just gonna go into it right now. Yeah, yeah. May fifteenth, nineteen forty one. The Yankees are in fourth place. Yes, Joe D is hitting one ninety four over his previous twenty games. He goes one for four against the White Sox that night. And this was only a couple weeks before Lou Gehrig died. Not a, not a good season so far for the Yankees. All he keeps doing after May 15th is getting a base hit at least once in every game. By June 17th, 1941, he breaks the franchise record streak of 29 games. Uh, set back in 31 and 1919. The streak now becomes a national story, Time Magazine, radio programs, the media. And then on June 29, 1941, in the seventh inning of a second game of a doubleheader against the Washington Senators, he singles and breaks George Sisler's 41-game streak set in 1922, which was the modern live ball era record. But he doesn't stop, Chris. He doesn't stop. Goes... To July 2nd, 1941, because 44 games is the olden times record. That, yeah, I was going to say. Of Wee Willie Keeler. Of the dead ball era. The dead ball in 1897. So not even in the same century. <laughs> he breaks that record with a fifth inning dinger off of the Red Sox, Dick Newsom. It's only July 2nd. The streak extends to July 17th, 1941 in Cleveland. They had a record number of people at this game in Cleveland. Not 10-cent beer night record. Joe DiMaggio hitting streak record. 67,468 fans. And Cleveland third baseman Ken Keltner makes two amazing stops on Joe with shots down the line. And 
the streak ends at 56 games. That's two months worth of baseball this guy got at least a hit in every game in. That is unbreakable, at least to me, that record. I don't think we'll ever see anybody really come close. Like, you see people getting half of that, and you're like, whoa. Pete that, Rose that's... got to, like, 40-plus, I remember. Yep. That was it. But, again, another guy who should be in the Hall of Fame. Uh, His haircut should, too. To bring, up what you, to bring up what you said, though, Yankees, when they hitting streak starts, they're in fourth place. Hitting streak ends July 17th. They're in first place. Five and a half games back, seven games ahead after that. And then what does he proceed to do after getting no hits in that game? Hit safely in his next 16. I, which I still think might be the best. If you look at it, 69 out of 70. Ooh. Or is it 79? Oh, no, it's 69. No, it's, it's 60. 69 out of 70. <laughs> 69. Uh, but seriously, hitting safely in 69 games, stop. Let's not make that joke for Phil. I'm just kidding. But it just that record in itself is absolutely insane, and you'll never that's, see that. That's touched. over a third of the season. You're getting a hit in in a row in a row. Yeah, it's I, crazy. I did want to bring it up. He went to bat 223 times. Oh, I love. He it. struck out five times. Let me say that again: five times. I mean, granted, he was a great two to one walk to strikeout ratio guy his entire career. But that season, he had 76 walks and 13 total strikeouts. It's crazy. So that year, he hits 357, leads the league in RBIs with 125, total bases 348. 43 doubles, 30 dingers, 11 triples. That's 84 extra base hits for him that season. He even wins the MVP. He won the MVP for this in a season where Ted Williams hit 406. Yes. Like some of this that season might be the greatest hitting MLB has ever seen. Oh yeah. And well, we'll talk about what happens after this and how everyone was robbed. Thanks a lot, Hitler. Uh, <laughs> man. They go to the 41 World Series, they beat the Dodgers, and then in 42, um has a decent season. Hits uh, 3.05. Um, they're still able to win the pennant, but they do end up losing to St. Louis in the World Series. And it's a damn shame because he is not an old man at this stage. He I was going to say, 28 this is pr- years old. This, is, this prime. is the prime of his career. He almost more than anybody. This is like. Only him and Ted Wood are the two. Two. Yeah. And Williams even served in Korea and lost more years. Yeah. Um, but in 43, February 17th, he enlists in the Army Air Force. Um, they don't want to put him in combat, obviously. Um, but he plays baseball and goes on kind of goodwill missions. Um, but this is where his stomach ulcers start to flare up. And now we're kind of entering a back end of Joe's career and some shitty lost seasons for him. Well, lost seasons, there, there was a thing where he tried to get more money from the Yankees in the offseason back in like 39 I think um, and he ended up signing this is what I was talking about where he told him that he was going to become a fisherman <laughs> uh, but they were talking about the stress and the stuff started then where it really compounded when he got into the army and they were talking about this when he was getting like physical checkups all the time yeah and he was getting so frustrated with the amount of money that he he was losing and he was talking about this like really consumed with he was like talking 
and I forget who had this quote, but they were just like, well, when we go back, you have the GI bill. So you're going to be making your, you're going to, they guarantee you're going to go back to the, your job at that salary, blah, 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 blah. And Joe was like, no, no, no. I want them to pay for the three years that I missed. Exactly. And that's like, that's what he was talking about. He was it's just back like, pay. It's back pay. How many World Series have my, I won? Yeah, I was in my prime. And it was like that kind of stuff that you can tell really started to affect his like mental and we were saying he get, he has really bad ulcers in this in this yeah. period where he's in Hawaii and he's in all these places you know with Muhammad Ali and all these other uh, god I can't even think of another war like what would be a well, one from like the Iraq Muhammad <laughs> Ali and Bill Burr <laughs> hey you fucking bin Laden <laughs> just checking in on you just um, but uh, it, he was the like we were talking about. Uh, he's the an icon at this point. Yes, like he's as American as apple pie, Chevrolet, and baseball. He is baseball. Yes, I mean, and because he's not a frosty dick like Ted Williams outwardly. Exactly, um, because he's Madison Avenue now. Kid from San Francisco uh, misses the forty three, forty four, and forty five seasons. Comes back in forty six. Um, him and the Yankees struggle this year, actually. Hits only 290 with 25 dingers. I uh, saw he had bone spurs. We're going to get into the bone spurs okay. in the next few seasons where this is where it just completely... He's still amazing, but it just takes away just that little bit. If you watch the way he hits and then not when he trots, when he yeah. actually has to sprint, he is literally limping. Yeah. And you're just like, whoa, it's such a different... Pre World War and post World World War, it's a different world. New era, yeah, um, yeah. Forty six is just the almost like a, everybody getting their feet underneath yeah. it again. I feel like uh, that season. Yeah, they lose the pennant to the Red Sox, which we'll talk about in a very important World Series. If you stay next. tuned for our next episode, <laughs> uh, forty seven uh, January seventh, as you were saying, um, he had a bone spur in his left heel, surgically remu- removed. Two months later, skin graft surgery needed to close the wound from the first operation. So he doesn't join the Yankees until 420, 1947, which is the day of days. Uh, ends up hitting uh, only 143 in April and then just goes on another tear. Yep. And along with the rest of the team, the 43 Yankees won 19 games in a row, um, finished the season back to his old self. 315, 20 dingers, 97 RBIs. And he wins this year his third MVP, though the 56 was great over Williams. I think Williams won the triple crown this year yeah. in the AL. <laughs> but still, he won his third MVP. Um, coming off of the, the injury, I feel like there was kind of that look of... I mean, we all know sp- how sports writers are. Well, yeah. You know, that, I mean, that's just uh, something that I never knew in this offseason... Oh yeah, this is a good one. Yeah, I, I know exactly what you're going to talk about. I had no idea. So they they're fresh off of the, winning the World Series. He's fresh off of injury. The Yankees actually have a deal in place for them to trade Joe DiMaggio for Ted Williams. Then the Red Sox say, "All right, throw in uh, Yogi Berra too." <laughs> the Yankees were just like, "No, what the?" I mean, I'd say that's a perfect one to one deal, but you throw the Yogster in there, that's. You know, it was too much. It was just too much. But it, it's an interesting thing to think of Ted Williams in New York, not even DiMaggio in Boston. Like, it, it's such a weird 
obviously. DiMaggio would have been hitting him on Lansdowne Street, though, over the monster. Oh, my. I mean, he, he would have just. Yes, he like, would have dominated. Because that's in a that short park. porch Woo. in right. Uh, his, he would have probably been averaging, even at this stage of his career, like 50 doubles. Yes. At least. Uh, yes. He'd have been doing it like Bogsy from the other side of the plate. Uh, checking in on you, Bogsy. Bogsy going to New York. Oh. So, uh, 48 more issues with the bone spur. He still plays in 153 games. Yeah, he's he's a player. Uh, hits 320, leads the AL in home runs and total bases. Major League Baseball with 155 RBIs. Scores 110 runs, but they can't win the pennant. Yep. Because this was the, as we talked about, the Larry Doby season for the Indians. Um, 49, the Bone Spurs come back again. Misses the first 65 games of the season with Bone Spurs. Um, they're in a pennant race with Boston. Um, he heroically came back. Um, only has 272 at-bats, but still he hits 346. And entering the last series of the season, Boston's got a one-game lead with two to play. And they come to Yankee Stadium, and on October 1st, 1949, it's Joe DiMaggio Day. It really is. 69,551 fans. His mom and his younger brother, who was playing on the other team, are there. Um, best quote he said from that, just, I want to thank the good Lord for making me a Yankee. Because this was just like a party. Probably not... As annoying as that franchise is, it probably would pale in comparison to the annoyance of Jeter's farewell tour in every damn stadium who did not hold a candle to the Yankee Clipper. Um, he thought he would play um, three innings in the final game because they're tied. This is last game of the season. Yep. Uh, Yankees get out to a four, four to nothing lead. He doubles and scores um, at this point, but... There's a moment in this game where uh, Joe appears mortal for the first time on a baseball field. Um, they're up in the ninth inning. Um, he misplays a ball hit by Bobby Doerr, uh by the Re- of the Red Sox. He ends up getting a triple. The Yankees still hang on to win 5-3 to three and end up winning the pennant. And they do beat the Dodgers in the World Series, but I think he kind of knew. I, w- I was going to say they, they talk about this play because I think he takes himself out. Yeah. And so does. after this play, because he literally said that was a catchable ball, I almost lost this game for us. Um, and it's to his credit, he could tell that he just wasn't at the level that he once was. Um, we see they get a couple of managers coming in. Oh, yeah. Which it's got to be rough for him because he like we were saying he should have had this like farewell tour he feels like it's kind of overshadowed by this new manager who do we got why don't you tell him chris well uh larry old uh, i forget his last name um but the man this god i forget his last name i forgot to write it down um but new manager comes in and takes him away from uh the cleanup hitter yeah he moves him down in the lineup. To fifth. And he yeah. felt like it was a disrespect. He felt like this should have been. But that's not how baseball was back then. No. It I was mean, more like, like we were saying, took himself out. Um, so 50, which is his last full season. He hits 301, leads the AL in slugging percentage. 32 dingers, 155 RBIs. They beat the Phillies in the World Series. I was going to say, they still win the World so Because well, there's so much. Yeah, there's so much more talented than everybody. Um, 
uh, 51, only 116 games, and now they have a new guy playing center field for them. I was going to... And who's set to play center field for uh, them. Who's set to play center field and is not... He's almost like his opposite. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we got Mickey Mantle coming in. Mickey Mantle. Looking like the all-American cornbread. <laughs> but with so much more of a drinking problem. <laughs> It's it is kind of interesting to think that the look of him is what DiMaggio's demeanor was. Yeah, do you know what I mean? Everybody thought Mickey Mantle was this like all American good boy, and it was more of like he was a raging alcoholic, <laughs> kind of a dick, Mickey Mantle, kind um, of a dick, the Mick. But to to DiMaggio's credit, throughout his career, he did find ways to make money off of it, like he off of the field like he opened up restaurants in San Francisco and he had some mob ties if you know what I mean Um, but and this is the thing that I actually kind of like was he was like the first guy to make a ton of money off of sponsorship deals yeah so Yogi Berra was talking about it so they would drive to the park and he would grab his mail and he would like hop in the car and he'd open up his mail and he would be like well how much money did you make this week or whatever and he would tell him he'd be like you made (laughs) <laughs> five thousand dollars you know what i mean it was like but like to them they like it would blow their minds but he was madison he he fit everybody's idea of what a professional should be it was broadway joe yeah he was yeah broadway joe before broadway joe before getting drunk on monday night football and hitting on Susie calber that's what i mean so like the just to put it in perspective as to what joe dimaggio was he was like the Literally, like, the superstar that I feel like nobody saw happening again since Ruth. Because, like, Ruth had gone out. Garrick, Garrick was big. But, like, I just feel like DiMaggio, like, he was the ex- whole nation. He was accessible, but not in a way where Ruth would just be getting trashed and eating hot dogs. He was accessible, like, I'm going to go to a famous bar with a lot of famous people. I'm going to conduct myself in a professional manner and... I'm going to get laid a lot. I was going to say, like, we saw he was never out of line. He was always, like, clean cut in the way he was, except for he did have some problems with some movie stars. He had some problems with the ladies. So I just did want to bring up, after 51, they win another World Series. Oh, yeah, yeah. He went to 11 World Series, won 10 of them. He had eight home runs, had 30 RBIs in them. Do you want to go into his career stats? Because he's a Hall of Famer, obviously, or do you want to talk about the ladies? No, no. Give me career stats, and then we'll talk about Mind you, some blondes. This is a guy. <laughs> Robbed of his prime. Who lost three years from 28 to about 31. 325 batting average, 398 on base, 579 slugging, 1,390 runs, 2,214 hits, 361 dingers, 1,537 RBIs, 13-time All-Star, three times MVP, and nine world champions. Excuse me, he went to 10. And won the batting title twice in an era with Ted Williams. Yep. In your own league. I mean, there are people that talk like you look at his stats and you go, okay, those are really good. But unless you were there to watch him where you were like, that is the best baseball player I have ever seen. Even Ted Williams said he was a better baseball player not a better hitter not a better hitter but a better baseball player because he was he did everything one of the best center fielders of his era and 
an unbelievable hitter. And then we get into some post-career. So he had trouble with his first wife when he was uh, still a ball player. Dorothy Arnold, an actress. He had, likes these, uh, these bombshells. Had uh, uh, his only son, I believe, mm-hmm. uh, Joe Jr., who is not close with. Um, but was a very jealous and insecure man. Yeah. So this is the thing that we get into with his next wife. Oh, his next wife. Who is the, I mean. It's Marilyn Monroe. Yeah. He married, he locked down that. I mean, he's an American hero for what he did on the ball field, but he managed to lock that down for a significant period of time. It's pretty good. Um, They obviously have like a whirlwind romance. Mm. Um, I think get divorced a couple of years after they're married or something. I forget the time frame. Yeah, it's uh, 1954, January. They get married. They end up eloping. Um, she didn't want to meet him. She thought he'd, he'd be a typical jock. Um, but like you said, he was very jealous and controlling. And when your wife is the hottest lady in the world at the time, and everyone wants a piece of her. Well, I think the... The th- the story that kind of sums up their relationship for this for this era is we all know the Mar- Marilyn Monroe standing in front of the grate on New York with her s- seven year itch baby with her skirt flying up. Um, Joe DiMaggio was actually there at that shoot, and they fought for like hours afterwards because he was like, "You can't release that. That's crazy. You're my wife. Like the- you got literally photographers. That's pornography, yes. damn." For that um, time. And then I'm pretty sure they broke up shortly after that. Yeah, they divorced in October 1954. They yeah, were married yeah. for nine months. Yeah. Um, DiMaggio, I guess, went into therapy. I guess he stopped drinking after this. Like, it was just a fucked up situation. Well, and then he proceeded to date a lot of women. Yeah, he did. And he proceeded to date a lot of women that were a lot... Very similar to Marilyn Monroe. So he dated this one actress who won a Marilyn Monroe lookalike contest. <laughs> he dated this one woman who was the Florida burlesque Marilyn Monroe. These are all like things that these women had. So what you're saying is Joe's got a type. So what we're I saying. I like your style, Joe. That's right. So what you're saying is I got a chance. <laughs> <laughs> one out of a hundred? <laughs> but that's, this is like, so he kind of gets obsessed with, with Marilyn. Marilyn goes off and marries uh, screenwriter and then Arthur Miller, yeah, starts to become friendly with uh, some Kennedys and you know, starts using some stuff and some things. She was definitely partying super hard. Um, she then she they both were kind of reconnected though after well, they, her marriage to Arthur Miller was ending. She uh committed herself to a mental institution, I believe, in New York and they wouldn't let her out. So yeah, she ends up calling Joe and Joe comes and actually gets her out. Which, in retrospect, I'm just saying, might not have been the best thing because then she dies a couple of, you know, yeah. I think a couple of months after. Uh, it said uh, August 1st, 1962, he allegedly said he was going to end up marrying her. Um, and unfortunately, on August 5th, she ends up dead after ODing. Now, who? I'm not saying that this, there's connection between these, ho- these high schools. <laughs> But my man. <laughs> um, yeah, so Marilyn Monroe ODs. He 
obviously is heartbroken and kind of becomes a recluse after this. Yeah, I mean, not only is he a recluse, he's pissed off at all of the negative people in her life which surrounded her towards the end. Yeah. Including uh, Old Timers Day, I believe, at Yankee Stadium where he snubbed RFK. Yeah. <laughs> like It was awesome. Uh, allegedly had half a dozen roses delivered to her grave. Like, he handled all the funeral shit. Yeah, like, he yeah. barred people from that funeral, which is like, damn, bro. Um, but yeah, he became a recluse after that outside of advertising Mr. Coffee. Yes. Like, it, he became a spokesman for certain things, but as far as like going out and stuff like that, he was kind of a private dude. Yeah. Which public, is insane. Well, going from what he was, which he was at all of these like clubs and like these fancy dinners and dating all these actresses, after Marilyn dies, he literally just kind of is like a homebody. And just kind of does like some advertising and kind of stuff like that. But they were saying he wouldn't even like sign baseballs or bats or anything yeah. like that for people. And then uh, right before like he died, um, one of the Bush presidents, the first one, uh, invited him and they like went into this room and there was just like a bunch of stuff for him to sign. And he was so pissed. Oh, I'll bet. Just like, I'm not signing this crap. <laughs> but that's kind of the way he was later in life where we see he would do all this stuff just to make money. And and he'd go to all the Yankees old-timers game, yep. want to be introduced as the best Yankee ever. Like, oh, yes, yes, mm-hmm. he demanded that, which I, I I love and agree with. I can't, you know. Oh, he was just the fucking man. Do you want to uh, talk about the Pete Rose story about him doing those goodwill missions in Vietnam? Oh, yeah, I kind of forgot about that. So uh, Pete Rose told the story on the Graham Bensinger podcast where we talk a lot on this podcast about the alleged side of of certain people's genitalia, particularly a former rapping genie who made it rain candy, who won multiple titles for the Lakers. We're not going to talk about him. We want to know. We just want to know. I mean, maybe in our DMs, you just slide in with a dick pic. That's it. Shaquille. But... uh, (laughs) So Pete Rose said they were doing this goodwill mission in Vietnam and um, as far as just like playing baseball and like, you know, support the troops, hooray, whatever. Um, They both had to take a shower one night. Pete Rose saw Joe DiMaggio shower and said, number one, Marilyn was a lucky woman. And number two, Joe DiMaggio was a penis with a man attached to it. Well, it (laughs) he's just swinging this, you know. Italian hammer and I, sometimes we know sometimes <laughs> it's it's a great story from Pete Rose when you think about it because he just does not hold oh, back. Pete Rose doesn't give a fuck about anything that's what I love but it's like the most positive dirty laundry you can give someone you know like oh man I wish that story wouldn't have gotten out about how big my dick is that's ah, too bad <laughs> what do you think about this angle for this pick here on uh... my phone but no but Joe DiMaggio, a Yankee legend, um, yeah. ended up a uh, heavy smoker during his lifetime. Probably didn't help with the stomach ulcers. Um, ends up dying uh, March 8th, 1999, which uh, significant the Yankees did win the World Series that year. Um, but yeah, Joe DiMaggio won a, not only a baseball hero, but an Italian hero, but more than anything, an American hero. as Just someone so culturally relevant for an extended period of time. And a brother. 